Patriarch, Chapter 1, Part 5. Abram, of course, had known life-changing moments before, and he'd come to realise that they were rarely pre-announced. Sometimes he hadn't even recognised them for their import at the time, but when he had, they were anchored in his mind by memories of the mundane, the incongruous context for the extraordinary. And so it was that these particular words would, for Abraham, always be set against the backdrop of the night sky. The same stars which shone the night before, and every night before that, would never shine in quite the same way again. They had become the reference point, the reminder, and the familiar which anchored the extraordinary in the context of Abram's life. That, however, was down the line. For now, Abram only felt elation. For these past years, he'd asked the God, who he didn't know, to speak. Only to get to know a God who seemingly didn't speak. But now, God had spoken. More clearly and profoundly than ever before. For once, Abram didn't notice the chill of the pre-dawn as he stumbled his way home. Progress in the gloom was slow, but Abram had a renewed sense of energy and urgency. It was only as he neared home in the cold light of day that he realised explanations would still be hard. Abram stopped to take stock. On the one hand, Terah's death made it somewhat easier, and once again circumstances seemed to be conspiring to work in Abram's favour. On the other, he will still need to tell Nahor, but increasingly the brothers had drifted apart anyway and, and reached a point where they seemed to have accepted they lived in different worlds and didn't seek to question or understand the other. Nahor would simply take on the role of family patriarch, and good luck to him in that. Lot and Sarai, however, were more complicated, although for very different reasons. Abram still felt responsible responsible for Lot, and he felt he owed it to his nephew to take him along, despite God's injunction to him to leave his household. Sarai, of course, would also have to come. But Abram felt a somewhat different obligation to her. Not only to take her, but also to tell her why they were going. When Abram reached the house, the sun was well up in the sky and its increasing warmth gave Abram the sense of well-being he needed to do what he was about to do. Sarai hadn't yet risen, and quietly Abram slipped free of his outer garments and slid into the bed next to his wife, gently touching her as he did. For her part, Sarai's sleep was lightening with the dawn, and she became conscious of his presence, first the muffled sounds of clothing being dropped, and then the familiar odour of the body she knew so well. And finally, the touch, not only of Abram's hands, but also his breath on her face. It was the breath she loved best of all. 
It seemed to give her life. When she awoke alone in the morning, she seemed to lack the same energy and life to engage with the day. But when she felt his breath, it seemed to permeate and quicken her whole being. And never was this feeling as strong as this morning. She turned to him routinely, but no less meaningfully for that, and rested her head on his chest, a position in which few secrets could be hidden. And as she heard and felt Abram's racing heartbeat, she knew today was going to be significant. My princess, it's time for us to move on. Sarah wasn't in any way surprised. Of course, she knew of Abram's restlessness, but she waited for the real news, that which she couldn't pick up or discern, the why. Abram kissed the top of her head gently and and smiled. He loved her. He loved her beauty. But perhaps more than that, he loved the way she knew and understood him. Could there be anything more precious than that? He owed her an explanation, wanted to give it, and Sarai was ready to receive it. And so he began. Still awkwardly at first, he he had never told anyone about his emptiness and his quest before. But as he spoke of hearing God speak for the first time, he felt Sarai's responsiveness, her, her attentiveness, her understanding, her love, even a shared excitement. He could feel her heartbeat quicken in time with his, and he became bolder, more open and free. He spoke of things he, he didn't necessarily understand or indeed have answers for, of longings, questions, hopes and fears. He began to relax and, and just speak everything out faster and faster, more deeply, everything, and then he froze. As he replayed his last words, he knew immediately he had said too much. In fact, he couldn't believe what he had said and was cross with himself for not being more controlled. And at once the confidence drained out of him. His awkwardness returned and and words simply wouldn't come. And sure enough, first he felt Sarai's grip on him loosen and then she curled up and withdrew into a ball upon him. Sarai too had been carried along by the excitement of all that Abram had shared with her and the quickening rhythm which propelled him along into a fuller and fuller account caused her to forget her caution and drop her guard. Consequently, she was ill-prepared when rudely, cruelly and typically reality called a halt to the dream. God may say, I will make you into a great nation. But the truth is that although dreams can be conceived and promises delivered, for Sarai at least, children were harder. She didn't know Abram's God, even though her spirit was stirred as he talked about him. So when he spoke into her barrenness, she had no reason as yet to trust him, let alone his words. Her curse mocked her and wrecked all dreams. It always had done, 
and she couldn't see things changing now. She was useless. The fatal flaw in everyone's plans and dreams, apparently even God's. Her excitement ebbed away, and she couldn't prevent her body going limp. She felt Abram stutter and his confidence fail him. She drew her legs up beneath her and knew the moment had passed. She felt Abram kiss her forehead again in a way she understood was not just an expression of love and of compassion. It was a sign of closure. Talk was over. There was nothing more to say. Sarai waited a few seconds for Abram to turn over awkwardly and then a few minutes more to hear his breathing deepen and sleep to engulf him. Oh, the relief would come that easily and quickly to her. Ever the pragmatist, Sarai knew that the only thing to do was get on with life. And so she slipped out of bed. As she dressed herself, she travelled in her mind along the well-worn route of scheming and dreaming ways to avoid disappointing and failing the man she loved. But as ever, without answers. When Abram eventually awoke later that morning, his emotions were mixed. Despite the pain and awkwardness of the moment with Sarai, he couldn't help but remain excited, and despite the lack of sleep, he was very much alive and raring to go. The first person he sought out was Lot, if for no other reason than he could hear him. Lot was one of those people you invariably heard before you saw Lot didn't request or require explanations. Life was pretty straightforward. Action was what counted. If it had to be justified, then feelings or hunches would do. Considered reasoning and judgment only hindered Lot's appreciation of the moment. And at this particular moment, Abram was grateful for that. As suspected, Nahor was equally accepting of Abram's decision both awkwardly appeared not to notice the incongruity of one brother's few questions of another's dramatic or life-changing decision. Just once did Abram almost accidentally catch his brother's eye, and fleetingly he knew an affinity with his brother again. Both recognised the pain in the other's eye, and just for a moment Abram thought about articulating their shared heartache the loss of a father and the lack of a child. But before words could be formed, eye contact and indeed the moment was lost. So Abram turned and left. And in turning his back on Dehor and leaving the family in Haran, he became a patriarch and nomad. Leaving was more straightforward this time. Abram was able to trade mainly with his family, although this was trading in the very loosest meaning of the word. Never in his life had Nahor struck such bad deals, and by the end of the transactions, Abram had acquired an impressive caravan, not only of flocks and herds, but also slaves to oversee them. Again, he stocked up on the light but valuable and thus transportable wealth. For their part, the women of the wider family were unhappy about trading their jewellery for Sarai's household goods, but on the whole did so with at least superficial grace. 
In many ways, the departure replayed the events of five years before. An early start and a few early risers to bid them farewell, all set against the backdrop of a family burial site. Words were few, perhaps because of the hour, but more likely because each had little to say to the other. The women communicated more, but even then through looks rather than words. Sarai and Milka in particular allowed the poignancy of the moment to break through the barriers of shame and pain and just for the moment acknowledge their shared heartache. Each understood and appreciated the other's response to their barrenness and for the moment at least knew the affinity which had eluded them until now when it was too late. And so they were on the move again. Days merged into one another with the predictability of routine into which travellers quickly fall. The scenery changed little and their progress southward could really only be measured by the different people they met on the road. Hittites became more numerous than Babylonians and Egyptians less of a novelty. But as the caravan passed through the cities of Aleppo and then Ebla, Canaanite traders became more common too, and Abram was less at ease. Maybe his discomfiture was because he'd had few dealings with them in the past. Or maybe because he was conscious that his destiny was on a collision course with them for the future. But for whatever reason... Abram found himself doing all he could to avoid these particular fellow travellers. They had little choice but to take the traditional route for travellers and pass through Damascus. And for the first time since leaving Ur, Abram couldn't fail to be impressed. Trading in silks, perfumes and carpets had resulted in extraordinary wealth for the residents of the city. There was an arrogance in the air. The world began in Damascus and will end there, was a refrain Abram had gotten used to hearing uttered in Ur by homesick Syrian traders. Now on their home territory, the self-confidence of the city's populace was overwhelming. Blocking the routes between Mount Hermon and the Syrian desert, they had a stranglehold on trade and wealth. Of course, this made the city vulnerable to the next great power, wanting to exert influence in the region, and yet somehow, as traders tend to, the city always came out on top. Abram could tell that much of his ever-expanding entourage were, were taken in by what they saw, particularly Lot, who had been exuberant upon entering the city and wistful upon departure. For Abram, though, Damascus was stifling. It represented all he'd grown tired of, and he he couldn't wait to be back on the road. In his hurry to restock, he he recognised that his father would have disapproved of a number of the bargains he'd made. He did, however, make one bargain with which he was pleased. One of Sarai's maids, Masek, was keen for her son to join them. She was flowing with praise about his abilities as a herdsman, but given that mothers aren't normally known for their objective opinion about their son's attributes, Abram had paid little attention. 
That was until he was introduced to Eliezer, and very quickly formed the opinion that he was indeed one of the best judges of livestock he'd ever encountered. And that was saying something for a man who'd spent as much time among livestock as Abram had over recent years. So he not only found a role for the man, but engineered a senior one at that. It meant a bit of a division of responsibilities among the present household, including the somewhat delicate task of moving his present chief herdsman, Eber, sideways. The truth was the man wasn't doing well with, a, with an ever-increasing herd. He simply didn't have the calibre to manage so many livestock and herdsmen. It proved more than a little awkward, but Abram managed it with some sharp diplomacy, creating two parallel roles of chief herdsman for both his and Lot's herds. He was, though, careful to ensure Eber joined Lot while he took on Eliezer. Consequently, Abram felt pleased as he left Damascus for a number of reasons, not least of which was the refreshing cool of the early dawn. The sun was just rising as the caravan made its way through the beautiful orchards on the fringes of the city and along the Abana River, whose fast-flowing waters fascinated him. Up until now, his life had been dominated by the Euphrates, but the great river now looked ponderous by comparison. Abram's mood, therefore, influenced by the scenery around him, was alert, energetic and positive. However, the further south he headed, and the nearer he came to his place of destiny, the more his natural sense of uncertainty and awkwardness returned. Oh, how he hated this floor. He saw it as much as a curse as as Sarai's barrenness. One moment, he could be bold, decisive and full of faith. The next, scared, confused and vulnerable. He could never quite fathom it and was grateful to Sarai, who not only knew him, but tolerated him and genuinely loved him. With time on the road to reflect, he wondered whether he was worthy of that love. Or more specifically, as he looked out across a strange, alien and potentially hostile land, how would that love measure up when the accursed fear gripped him again? His reflections were halted and then redirected as Abram rounded the bend in the hillside trail to see stretched out before him the huge sea, which his guides told him was called Galilee. The beauty of it brought both him and the whole caravan to a halt and momentarily quickened his spirit. For the first time, as Abram looked over the lake and the land before him, he could believe that God's promises would be worked out. His spirit soared, and he knew that God would work out his blessing here.
You're listening to the Patriarch Podcast. For more information, you can go to BibleNovels.com where you can become a Patreon supporter to support Overseas Mission.